Thank you, Uncle. Well, that was such a blessing. You guys blessed by that song? I was too. Well, good morning. Happy Sabbath. Just want to say a happy Mother's Day to all the moms. We, we appreciate every one of you. We wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you. Um, some of you have heard anyway that um, I'm, going to be, I, I'm going to be moving on in December. I'm just going to stand up here and say that right now anyway. And because uh, I'm getting married in September, and so I'm going to be moving on in December. And so this sermon up here might, I don't know how many times I'm going to get to share with you between now and then. And so as I was preparing, I was trying to think of, you know, if I had to share a message with somebody, what would be the most important thing? What would I really want to get across? And so this morning, I just want to take a look at the big picture, what I feel like is the most important in my walk with Christ, in I'm doing Bible studies, in um, just doing the work of God, just trying to see, okay, what is the main thing that we need? I'm going to invite you to pray with me first. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for another day of life. God, it is a blessing every day that you give us, but there's a special blessing, a special communion time that you have given us on the Sabbath, and I pray that we would remember that, that we would truly experience that and seek to experience that, Lord, if we have not before. Be with us now, Lord, and speak through me. I pray that it would only be your words as I can do nothing on my own, Lord. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've been praying to God about, um, about preaching and, and the way I, I, I approach it because I feel like I'm not a preacher. You know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm just as comfortable sitting in the pew just where you guys are right there. And, and I mean, when I had a small preaching class up at AFCO, you know, it was told to us to preach when you get up, any, any, anytime you have a Bible study, anytime, just preach it. Preach from the Word. And, and, and I think that that works for many people, but I think that it needs to be natural, actually. I think in order for the Holy Spirit to use you, you have to, you have to teach the way, that, I mean, the way that God has allowed you to be able to teach. And so this is what I'm trying to pray to God about. Like, Lord, I don't want to sit there and preach and let it just be empty. I want to teach. I want to let you use me and let it be natural. And so if I stop myself at any time during the sermon, you're going to know why. It's because God is speaking to me. But I'd like to open up to Romans chapter 14 and verse 7. Because there is one thing that I really love, and that is Bible study. Romans chapter 14 and verse 7. This was our scripture reading this morning. But go there, and I'm going to tell you a story. Actually, I'm going to give you a scenario. Sorry, this thing is kind of popping. I'm going to give you a scenario, and I want you to think about it here as I'm explaining it, okay? Put yourself in this situation. So imagine with me for a moment that you're riding in a small passenger airplane, okay? It's you, the pilot, and a small group of kids. So you're taking these kids, and you're, you're in this private jet, and, and you know the pilot, and he's flying you over to another island, okay? You're talking, you're having a conversation, you're enjoying the scenery, when suddenly the pilot, he starts to have a chest pain and shortness of breath, and you look over, and all of a sudden he goes limp. And he's unconscious. You reach over and you feel, and he's not breathing, and his heart has stopped also. Immediately at this time, you realize, oh, the pilot is dead, right? You take a look behind you, and you see the, the, the children that are traveling with you. They're unaware of what's going on. Okay, you guys have the, you have the scenario. You have it in your mind. You're there. You're up thousands of feet in the air. You've never flown a plane in your life, and you look around, and there's no parachutes anywhere on the plane. 
Okay, so this is obviously a hypothetical situation, but I just want you to see this picture in your mind. Now, as you're assessing the situation, you see there's a book by the pilot's controls, and it says, a step-by-step guide to landing this plane safely. Okay, what would you do? I'm going to give you four options. Think about them real carefully. Number one, you can complain that you didn't ask for this situation to happen, and you wish beyond all hope that you were not in it. Still going to crash, still going to die. Number two, you can jump out without a chute, commit suicide. Doesn't make the problem go away, it just removes you from the problem. Number three, you can throw a party knowing that eventually you're going to run out of fuel and crash and die. So you may as well have as much fun as possible until then. Just only prolongs the imminent fate. Or number four, you can accept the situation for being very, very unfortunate, but realize your responsibility. You can choose to pick up the book, follow the instructions, seeing that there's at least hope in this choice. Hope for yourself and for those who you are traveling with. What would you choose if you were in this situation? Now, I know it sounds kind of funny, uh, and a lot of us here this morning, I hope each of us here this morning, would, would find the answer very, very simple, actually, you know, and say, well, the other three are just very selfish, and at least the fourth one, I have hope. But let's relate this situation, this scenario, to the world that we actually live in. You see, because we find ourselves in a very unfortunate situation. We were born into this battlefield, this war that's going on between Christ and between Satan right here. And we're caught in the middle of it, each and every one of us. And this battle is over our souls. And from my experience recently, I feel like this battle is intensifying every day. The Bible says that... uh, uh, the devil has great wrath coming down to us because he knows he has a short time. And as the time gets shorter, he's going to have more and more wrath, pressing harder and harder in each one of our lives, trying to separate us from Jesus. He's attacking each one of us more and more. And yes, we may not have been asked to be born into this situation, but by our choices, we determine actually our own fate. Now, these options that I have given you for this plain scenario, uh, like I said, it seems kind of obvious, the answer, but let's relay this to the, 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 to the real life and see if people are actually making that decision. Okay, the first one was that you close your eyes and act like nothing was happening. Have you seen anybody going through this experience in life? Number two was you commit suicide because you're tired of dealing with the situation, because you, 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 know, you felt the pressures, the, the spiritual warfare that's going on in your life, and you just give up. People give up. Have you seen that happening? And number three, you have those who just want to throw a party, realizing that we're going to die anyway, so we may as well just live it up, live life to the fullest, have as much fun as we can possibly have, according to earthly pleasures. Go for things that are just unsatisfying. When we relate this to to the real life, all of a sudden it sounds like, oh, wow, more people are actually making these decisions that sound ridiculous when we're in a plane situation, They're making these decisions here in real life. But God, he has given us this book. He has given us this book that has hope for life and hope for this war that we find ourselves in. Now, the hope is in a safe landing, but the focus while you're in the situation is to focus on getting you to the safe landing. You see, the hope is in the safe landing, right? And so the joy and the peace that we should find is in that safe landing. But right now, we need to have our focus on how do we get there, right? Romans chapter 14 and verse 7, as we have opened up to, as we find ourselves in this battle, the Bible says over here a principle. 
It says, for none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. So we're in this battle, and the Bible is telling us that none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. Now, I'm just going to put this out there that I'm taking this text out of context. I'm going to tell you that right now. But the principle is actually taught in the Bible, because Jesus says, he that is not with me is against me. He that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. He's saying there's one side or the other. You're either on Satan's side of the battle, or you're on God's side of the battle. There's no fence sitting. There's no innocent bystanders. You cannot choose to remove yourself and say, I'm just going to sit on the sidelines and just wait to see what happens. And then maybe God will have mercy on me. He says, no, by every decision that we make, you are choosing what side you are on. I remember, actually, I don't really remember very well, but when I was a little kid, I think I was, I want to say I was maybe between the ages of six and eight. Um, me and my cousin, and two cousins actually, uh, one was the same age as me, one was two years older. We were out playing in front of my grandma's house one day at, I uh, uh, can't remember, it was on the weekend sometime, and um, there were some neighborhood boys who were a little bit older. They were like, I think maybe early, maybe they were teenagers anyway. Um, somehow, I don't really remember a whole lot of it, and you'll probably know why in just a second, but um, somehow we got in a little tussle with them, and the next thing I knew, I was getting choked out like this, and then um, I think, I don't know what my cousin was doing, but um, parents start coming out. I think there was even a mention of a gun coming out. Cops came out. Um, and I don't really remember a whole lot of it, maybe because I was getting choked out. I have no idea. But um, anyway, it was kind of an amusing story now when I look back on it because um, the cop was there and he was trying to figure out, he's like, who, you know, who, who saw what happened? Who started this? What, what was really going on? There was, you know, parents are arguing back and forth, you know, hey, uh, my kid, he's only, you know, I was only like maybe seven years old, eight years old, and these were teenagers, and, um, and as a cop went over to my, my cousin who was two years older than me, he must have been only like nine or ten years old, and he asked him, son, what did you, you know, can you tell me what you saw, because he was out there, and he said, I didn't have anything to do with it, I'm just an innocent bystander, <laughs> and the whole family kind of teased him for that, you know, because he was such a little kid, and yet he was just using, you know, these terminology, I'm just an innocent bystander, I didn't have any part of it, you know, he wanted to, he wanted to separate himself from the situation, you know, and say that I'm not part of it, I'm not going to take any responsibility, right, and so this is what the term innocent bystander is meaning, but there is no innocent bystanders in this life that we live. I'll never forget um, when I was first coming into church, I, I, was just, I was just slipping in. I think I've told you this before. I was just slipping in to hear a couple sermons here and there, and I would slip out as soon as it was over. And uh, there was one sermon that I caught, and I think I actually even came in maybe halfway through. I probably showed up at the church maybe like almost noon, and they didn't end until 1230. Um, so I came in like almost when it was over, but I caught the whole gist of the sermon, and he was talking about the two camps, those of the wicked and those of the righteous. And as I was sitting there listening, I remember thinking, okay, he's describing the wicked, this, uh, this pastor up in Oregon, and he was saying, you know, these are the kinds of characteristics that they have, the things that they're going to be doing, turning their back on God, living the life that they want to live. And I'm thinking in my head that this is not me. I'm like, praise the Lord, I'm, I'm, I don't fit into this camp. I don't fit into this category. This is good. This is very good. And then he started talking about the righteous and, the, and those who are following after God. And he's saying, you know, and their whole heart is just committed and they're, they're living a life of service and everything that they do is given over to him. And I'm thinking, that's not me either, though. And so I'm getting a little bit more nervous at this time. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm not there and I'm not there. Is there any more groups? And he says, there's one more group. He said, there's a fence in between these two camps. 
And he said, and this is where you find the majority of the people sitting on this fence right here, looking over, maybe at God's side, maybe wishing they were over here, but maybe still being pulled by some of Satan's side over here. And I was thinking as he was talking, yes, that's me. That's right where I am. I'm on the fence. Okay, this is good. At least I know where I'm at. I can have peace with myself. And then the next words that he said, oh, they cut me so, so deep. But they actually were a transition, a turning point in my life at the time. And he said, but what these people don't realize is that Satan owns the fence. And I was like, oh, I just found where I was and I realized I'm in the wrong, the wrong place. And it hurt. It really hurt. But, you know, it was a wake-up call to me, and it was really, it was something that spoke to my heart that said, you know what, this is truth. This is the truth. We have to make a decision. And sitting on the fence is making a decision, but it's making a decision for the wrong side. This is not where we want to find ourselves. So many of us are getting beat up, sitting on the fence, looking at God's side, but not fully committing to his army. But we don't realize is, is where the protection comes from. It comes from being completely and actually standing on God's side. This is where the protection from the devil actually comes. You see, this is a deception by the devil, to sit on the fence and see God and wonder why we keep getting knocked down by the devil and wonder where the power of God is. But God is just waiting for us to fully come to his side and take hold of the strength and let him actually protect us. One thing I think is a deception as well is that we don't really understand the power that's truly available to you and I this morning. But in order to understand that, all we have to do is we have to look at the life of Jesus. I want to get some interaction here. Tell me, what are some of the miracles that you remember Jesus doing? Some of your favorite miracles that you've seen in the Bible. Let me hear. What are some of them? Walking on water, okay. What else? Raising the dead, okay. Healing the leper who asked him, so he healed many sicknesses. What else? Calming the storm. The blind sea, I think I heard. I'm sorry? Casting demons out, okay. Very good. We restored the ear of the Roman soldier, right? He provided money in the mouth of a fish. He multiplied food to thousands. He did tons and tons of miracles. And the Bible says that if you wrote down all of them, I mean, there would be so many books. The world could not even contain it. The things that Jesus did. Now go to John chapter 14 and verse 12. Notice something that Jesus tells us over here. John chapter 14 and verse 12. The Gospel of John, chapter 14 and verse 12. These are Jesus' words specifically. He says, Most assuredly, or verily, verily, I say to you, he who does what? Believe. Believes in me. The works that I do, he will do also. The works that Jesus does, that does or did, the same works that he did, he says, we will do also. These are those same works that performed miracles. These are those same works that were inflicting major damage on the side of Satan's army. He says, these are the same works, if you believe, he says that you will do. And notice what it says. It goes on. It says, and greater works than these he will do, because why? I go to my Father. Now, what did Jesus mean by that? Why was the greater works that he was going to do because he went to his Father? Look at Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, a couple pages towards the back. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. The last words before Jesus left this earth, he was speaking to his disciples standing there, and he says, verse 8, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So you're going to receive what? Power through what? The Holy Spirit. You're going to receive power through 
the Holy Spirit. And he says this, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, this is going to be the power that you need to do even greater works than I actually did. Did Jesus actually mean what he said, though? Did he really mean literally that there were greater works that were going to be done than he actually did? Was he just saying it just to say it? I think to answer this question, let's look at the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians in chapter 1. So it goes Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Ephesians chapter 1. Paul over here is writing to the Ephesians, and he's giving this counsel on remaining in Christ and the power that you truly have remaining in Christ. And this is what I really want to focus on is in terms of our potential in grabbing hold of the power that Christ has already made available for us and that he wants to give to each one of us. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 19. Look at what the Bible says over here. It says, And what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards who? Towards us. Who do what? Who believe according to the working of his mighty power. Paul is saying there is exceedingly great power towards us who believe. Not towards Jews, not towards the New Testament church, not towards just the disciples. He says to those who believe. It says there is this power, exceedingly great power. How great is this power? In verse 20 it says, Which he worked in Christ when he did what? Raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. How much power did God pour out to raise Christ from the dead? You think about what is it that killed Christ? What is it that killed Jesus? It was sin. It was a broken heart because of sin. All the sin of the world, Satan pressing down upon Jesus. Everything that he had to give, he gave. He was, he was spent. Why would he, have, why would he have saved any kind of his power for anybody else besides putting it all on Jesus? He gave everything that he had, threw everything that he had on him. And God says, nice try, Satan. And he raises him from the dead. That power that overcomes all sin at one time, it says, is given to us. Who believe? Verse 21 says this power, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. You see that resurrection power. It's sealed the devil's death warrant. It's now given to us today. The same power that justified the entire human race from the Garden of Eden all the way to the second coming is given to us this morning if we would just believe. And that same power that resurrected Jesus can resurrect us to a new, walk in a new life with Christ and have victory over the devil and his deceptions. Now, I like verse 21 where it says, again, far above principality and power. The reason I like that is because in this same letter, in the back, Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, Paul tells us what our battle is against. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against what? Principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So Paul here, he's saying this is our battle. But just earlier in his letter, he says, you have a power that far exceeds this battle. So if the Bible is true, this means that the power given to us is far above what our battle is against. Amen? Amen. Let me say that again. If the Bible is truly God's word, and it is a promise that we can claim, he says that the power given to us to believe is far above 
what our battle is actually against. Can we lose? Can we lose if we truly connect to God's power? We cannot. Now, if this kind of power is available to us, what does this tell us about our enemy? What does this tell us about Satan? Do you think that the devil is throwing all that he has at you because you stub your toe on the way to the bathroom in the morning? Do you think this is the devil's deception? Do you think we would need the resurrection power of Christ to overcome and see that, oh, this is just a distraction by the devil? Friends, I hope that this is not the case because uh, he is much smarter than that. He is trying to separate you from God. We have to look much deeper in how, how the devil is trying to deceive us. Maybe you get a flat tire on your way to work. Is this Satan at his best? Is this really going to take your focus off of God? If it is, I'm afraid that we have a long way to go in our Christian walk. You see, the devil hates you, and he hates me this morning. There's no feeling sorry for the devil. He hates each and every one of us. The Bible tells us over and over again. He would love for us to have, to, to, to think that, you know, uh, a happy, a joyful, you know, happy-go-lucky life here on earth, you know, is, um, is blessings from God only. He would love for us to think that, you know, when we're taking part in irreligious amusements, you know, that's occupying our time and, uh, and think that this is from the blessings from God when maybe this is a deception from him, or I should say when this is a deception from him and it's truly separating us from God step by step. You see, we don't look at these things. We just think that it's, uh, maybe it's, you know, these other things like stubbing your toe or getting a flat tire. That is not the devil at his best. He is sly. He is, deception is the things that we, we cannot see. It's, it's the things that, that look like they're good. They look like they're from God, but they're just twisted just enough to actually divert our mind away from him. I remember thinking at one time, uh, God can't really want me to only do things that focused on him, could he? Because my whole life I just lived for myself. I just lived to please myself. And I'm thinking, there's no way that he could truly, I mean, there's got to be some sort of a balance, right? There's got to be some sort of a balance between me having just um, mindless amusement and me actually thinking about God and, and, and worshiping him and everything that I do. But listen how ridiculous this actually sounds. I, I want to live the Christian life, and I just want to be connected when I'm connected. But at times, God, I just need a break from you. I just need to take some time, and I just need to have some fun. I'm not saying that the Christian life is not fun. I'm saying the Christian life is tons of fun. I'm saying that God wants to fill our life. He wants to fill our desires, but that's only when our desires are aligned with him. Why did he want to give us something that would allow the devil to enter into our heart and deceive us and separate us from him? He doesn't want to do this. This is why the Bible says, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, because the devil is smart and he is good at what he does. What do we call good? Is it really from God? Things we call good, good music good food, a good movie. Are these things really from God? The Bible in Isaiah chapter 5 verse 20 says, Woe unto him who calls evil good and good evil, who puts darkness for light and light for darkness. This is the devil's deception. This is what he wants us to do. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28. Notice what Jesus says. I'm sorry, yeah, Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28. Notice what Jesus, the counsel that he gives us. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28, talking about the devil, it shows the true intents. It says, Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28, And do not fear those who kill the body, 
but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus specifically giving us a warning. He's saying, don't worry about another man who can actually kill you because he can't really touch what is truly what is mine. But he says, worry, or, or not worry, but fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Showing the true intents of the devil towards us. What he wants to do, the devil wants to destroy you and me. Why? Because this is his means of warfare against God. This is why, uh, this is the way that he knows that he can bring the most pain to God. Why is it that he can bring the most pain to God? Because God loves you and me more than anything, deeper than anything we have ever experienced and deeper than anything we can ever imagine. This is why the devil wants to separate us, because it hurts God, because God loves you and me. This is why God is calling us to a, a constant union with him in everything that we do to glorify him. Can you see God's love here this morning? God loves you so much. He wants to be with you more than anything in this world. Just by the fact that Satan would take the time and effort to zero in on you or me out of all the people in the world and put his efforts to separate us from God, it shows us, it proves the matchless love of our creator that he has for us this morning. Paul was an expert on this power that we can tap into. Look at Acts chapter 19 and verse 11. Acts chapter 19 and verse 11, we can see an account over here of Paul utilizing the power that Christ bestows upon each one of us here and the potential that we have in him. Acts chapter 19 and verse 11. Now Paul here was on his third missionary journey. He was coming from a brief visit to Jerusalem and then he stopped in Antioch and now he's returning to Ephesus where he had stopped for a brief time before. Now, Ephesus and their beliefs, you have to understand, was, first of all, it was like the, it was a metropolis city. I mean, it was the center and the capital of the province of Asia at that time. There was a lot of hustle and bustle, a lot of different people um, from all over, all different countries there. And they were very famous for a couple of things. They had this theater there. It was like the second largest theater in Asia. could hold like almost 25,000 people. And they had this temple that was home to an idol of the goddess Diana. And all of Asia, the Bible says, worshipped this goddess. And so we can see that there was a lot of paganism that was there in this city at the time. Satan was, had control over this city and the minds of the people. They were practicing magic. They were practicing idolatry. All these kinds of things. So this is the situation that Paul was going into. And look what God, what kind of miracles God worked through Paul in Acts chapter 19 and verse 11. It says, Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs, or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Is this a work worthy of, of being in Christ? Is this a work that, that Jesus may have shown us, something that sounds like a, a miracle that Jesus may have done? Does it sound similar? Maybe even greater, right? When, the, when Jesus healed the woman with the issue of blood, she touched his garment. His garment was at least still touching him, right? This is like people taking a, a snot rag that, that Paul had, right? And it was taken to the bedside of somebody who was sick and they were healed. Is this not a greater work than Jesus did? And he promised us that. He said, this is what I want you to do. Greater works than these you will do if only you do what? He said, if only you believe. Now the key is how these works were accomplished. The focus in verse 11, it says, now what? Now what? Who worked? 
God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul. Paul was just the instrument. There was nothing special about Paul that you or I could not attain this morning. It is God who works in us to do anything good. Do you realize that? You see, for me, I mean, just a few years ago, I'm sitting in the pew. I have absolutely no idea, hardly anything about the Bible. I could, I could not teach anybody anything about it. Why is it that I'm standing up here now and I have a different understanding about the Bible? It's only by the Holy Spirit. It's not because, I mean, I could have chosen another path. I could have chosen to just stay in the world and I would not be doing what I'm doing right now. Nobody here um, is any different than I am. Everybody can be doing the exact same thing. Things that you think you cannot be doing, you can do through the power of Christ. Now, Paul had this kind of belief in Jesus, and what was it that led him to this? Look at Acts chapter, Acts chapter 9 and verse 4 through 6. Acts chapter 9 and verse 4 through 6. If there is anything that we need to do to stand against the devil, it is right here. Acts chapter 9 and verse 4 through 6. This is when Paul was Saul, before he became Paul, and he was walking on the road to Damascus, and it says that in verse 4, he has an encounter with Jesus. It says, Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says what? Who are you, Lord? He asks the question, Who are you? So right here, we see that Paul recognizes that Jesus was speaking to him. This is the key, right? He has to be open enough that he will hear the voice of God. And he says, Who are you, Lord? And then the Lord says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. It's hard for you to, to, to try to battle me. You're going to hurt yourself. So Paul says, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what does he say? What do you want me to do? His heart was melted. He was open. He had an encounter with Jesus, and he said, I'm not going to fight you, Lord. I know that I can't win this battle. What do you want me to do? Have you come to a point in your life where Jesus is calling you and he's pressing upon your heart, and it hurts because maybe you have a lot of wealth, or maybe you have a lot of possessions, or maybe you have a lot of pride, and he's telling you to give up these certain things. Which way do you go? Do you say, no, I'm going to hang on to this, and just shut out that voice, and he says, you know, who's calling you? Or do you say, Lord, what do you want me to do? This is what he's asking, because when you ask that, he's asking us to ask that question, because when, he, when we do that, we're open now. We're open to instruction. And now he can tell us, this is what I want you to do. And the beautiful part about it is that he gives us strength to do it as well. But you see, we stop at that point when he's calling us, and we think, that, oh God, you're just going gonna to send me to a foreign country, and I'm going to be just eating bugs and stuff like that, right? And I'm gonna, I don't know what you're going to do with me, but he's just... He's saying, just be open. He says, I got your best interest in mind. Just ask me, what do you want me to do? Paul had a close, personal relationship with God this morning. And this is exactly what each one of us, he wants us to have. Look at Acts chapter 19. Go back to Acts chapter 19. I just want to read the next couple of verses and kind of expound on them just a little bit anyway. Because this personal relationship with Christ is what is going to develop uh, us to want to surrender to Him, to have that, that full belief in Him. 
that he has our best interest in mind and that we can just abandon to him and say, Lord, what do you want me to do? This is what he wants us to have. He wants to have it with each one of us this morning. So back at Acts chapter 19, after these miracles that Paul was um, working, I guess that God was working by the hands of Paul, look what happened, what came after. You see, you remember I told you that sorcery and magic was very big in Ephesus at this time. But look what happened in verse 13. It says, Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest who did so. So this is a story where we see that there were actually apostate Jews who were practicing exorcisms, even though uh, God had condemned this back in, back in the Mosaic Law. And they were practicing this, and they were getting money off of it. But it says that they were here, and they were casting out demons, but their faith was based off of what? Someone else, right? Their faith was based off of somebody else going through Paul. You see, that's not a personal relationship, and there is no power in this. Look what happened to these seven sons of Sceva as they were practicing this in verse 15. It says, and the evil spirit, so the evil spirit spoke through this man who was possessed, answered and said, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? It says, then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Have you ever had an experience where you felt like you were being drugged through the cleaners by the devil and you felt very naked and wounded? Is it maybe because we weren't hanging on to that personal relationship with Christ? Maybe we were relying, maybe our faith, God was trying to show us that your faith is not based on me. Maybe it's based off your pastor. Maybe it's based off your spouse. It's based off the elder or something. Friends, God wants to have a personal relationship with you, where you talk to him every day, where he can work the miracles through you, where you can preach to somebody else, because there are people in this world that only you can reach. Not me, not pastor, not the elders up here, but only you. He wants you to accept that call. And there's power and there's peace in that life as well. But you notice these, these men, because they were relying on somebody else's faith, there was no power. And they left humiliated and they left even physically wounded. You see this, this, this demon, he recognized Jesus. He says, I know who Jesus is. I tremble at him. And I know Paul is because he's connected to Jesus. But you, I don't see you anywhere in that picture. Because you haven't allowed him. You haven't accepted him into your life. You don't have a personal relationship with him, but this is what God wants us to have. You see, the name of Jesus, the Bible, it's only as powerful as the relationship that we have with Christ. Why? Because in a relationship, we have love, we have trust, and we have faith. This comes with knowing him. This is why this is life eternal for those that know him, Jesus, and God, because you have these three in a relationship. There's a story of a woman who received a book from a friend and she opened it, read a few lines, and then she put it down. She tried reading it a few times, but she found it really dry, really boring. And she put the book away, and it began collecting dust. One day, she was at a coffee shop. She meets the man of her dreams, and she's just in awe. He was a handsome man. His eyes had a, a gentleness that she had never seen before. You know, when he spoke to her, his words were soft and kind, and it spoke right to her heart. She was in love with this man, she realized. And in the midst of her conversation, she found out that he was an author. In fact, turned out that he wrote the very book that her friend had given her a while back. So she immediately, when she left, she went home, she pulled the book off the shelf, and she began reading it again. But this time it was different. 
With every word, she could hear her soulmate's compassionate, or she could see his compassionate face. She could hear his soothing voice. She couldn't put the book down. It was the best book she had ever read in her entire life. What changed? What changed? It was her relationship with the author. Her relationship with him provided a power that transformed the words on this page right here. And there is no difference in the Bible. You see, the whole purpose of the Bible is to lead us to fall in love with the author. There, this book right here will not save us unless we find the author of it inside. It will point you to him and it will help you build that relationship with him. Stay in Acts chapter 19 and look at verse 17, what happened after this. You see, baptism is not a guarantee that you have a true conversion experience, a personal relationship with Christ. Look at verse 17. It says, This became known to all the Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. It says, Many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Verse 19, Also many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. You see, baptism is not evidence of true conversion, but here we see the Bible shows evidence of true conversion conversion at this point in time. It says that those who had believed, those who had been heard the preaching of, uh, of Paul, he had been there for three years, so he had been there a while, had heard the preaching of Paul, then when they combined it with seeing the power and the love of Christ, that he wants to keep us from being naked and wounded, he wants to keep us from harm, they fell in love with Christ. And now they had a true conversion experience. It says that they believed, they came confessing, telling their deeds, they brought the magic book, uh, the books of magic um, that they had had before. These were costly books that were written that were explaining the symbols that were in the temple of Diana. And they were, they were what the sorcerers used to, to perform their, um, their magic. And it says that they forsake all these things. They brought them and they burned them all together. They didn't sell them to try to make a profit and let somebody else be deceived by them. They said, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring them and I am going to get them out of my life. You see, many of the believers who were living their Christian life were still hanging on to their past life and lifestyle. But when they saw the true power of God and the true intentions of the devil, they had a conversion experience in their life and they gave up the cherished possessions that, had, that offended God. You see, these books, they were very expensive, like I said. And so this was representing, they were giving up everything. They were saying, Lord, uh, money is not something that I'm going to hang on to. I'm going to give it to you. Uh, fun, power, um, position, because it made them look like they were powerful in the eyes of others. This is not anything that's going to keep me from my relationship with you. I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to burn everything that is separating me from you because I see that this is from the devil and I see that he is using it in my life and I don't want it anymore. This is the sign of true conversion. The things that they had once delighted in and prided themselves in, they now abhorred. That is the sign. Jesus he wants to have a deep, abiding relationship with each of us here this morning. But if we're hanging on to the worldly pleasures, cherishing sins in our character, we're only allowing the devil to cut our true conversion, I'm sorry, to cut our connection to our only source of power and the only one that wants anything good for each one of us here this morning. Go back to this story of the plane scenario. And I just want you to put yourself in that situation again. 
Now, true, you didn't choose to be in the situation that you find yourself, but dwelling on that fact doesn't change anything. On the other hand, neither does ignoring it. But what about opening the book and setting it on the pilot's seat? Would that help you land the plane? Saying, God, I opened the book, I set it on the, pl- the, the pilot's seat. What about reading the end and how you land safely and live happily ever after? Would that help you land the plane if you stop there? What about reading a sentence here and there that give you various instructions that make you feel like you're learning? Would that help you learn the, land the plane? The truth is, it's even if you read the whole thing and followed it step by step, it's still not a guarantee that you could land the plane because you have no experience yourself. But, lucky for you, as you're reading the whole thing, as you're searching the whole manual, you find in the middle that there's a phone number that says, call anytime for this author of this manual, and he will guide you through the landing process. He's never unavailable. And this is exactly what happens when we commit our time to saying, God, I want to find you in your word. Because when we go to the word, God's not going to expect us to just stay only reading our Bible 24 hours a day. He's going to point you to, look, I've, I've created things out in the world. I've created things for, me to, for you to see my power. You can build your relationship through these other ways. But everything that you do, I want you to be thinking about me. When you're at work, when you're at school, whatever you're doing, think about me. This is what life is all about. I'm preparing a place for you. That's even so much better than what you can see around you. Yes, there are things you can enjoy here, but this is just the tip of the iceberg. I got so much things waiting for you. You see, Satan, though, he wants to keep us from finding that number to Jesus in the Bible by distracting us from reading it ourselves. He wants us to rely on others to interpret it for us. He wants us to to just get it secondhand so that we can have faith in somebody else because he realizes there is no power in having faith through somebody else. But then if we do find it, and we call our Savior directly, Satan redirects his efforts. He puts temptation, he puts business, he puts busyness in our lives to disconnect us from the author of the Bible. So I'm going to ask you this morning, where is your relationship with Jesus this morning? If I could share anything with you, it's that you want to have and cultivate a personal relationship with God, because this is exactly what he wants. And the time is getting shorter and shorter. Where is your relationship? Is it a personal one where you go directly to him? Where do you go through somebody else's faith to know him? Do you realize that God has power for you personally to overcome the devil through understanding scripture on your own? Where is your heart this morning? Do you recognize the the love that God has for you and wants to guard you from being hurt by the devil and his workers? This morning, will you make a commitment to God that seeing the war that we are in, will you choose to fight on the side of Jesus by spending more and more time with him? And not just more time with him, but all your time with him. Letting him consume your thoughts and anything that you're doing while you're at work, while you're at school, while you're at home. Letting your life be taken over by God's spirit. I told you before that I wondered, I asked myself that question. God doesn't really want me to to just think about him all the time, right? And the answer, as he has revealed to me, is yes, I do. And this is what he is calling each one of us here this morning. God will not lower that standard because that's what's going to bring you true peace and true happiness, no matter how much we try to do it on our own. So will you commit to God this morning to put away the activities that Satan is using in your life to separate you and your mind from God? Will you enlist in God's army today and take up the armored tank of power 
that God offers us and inflict damage on the enemy lines this morning. If that's your desire, I ask that you will stand with us this morning and we're going to sing a closing hymn. And it's number 614, Sound the Battle Cry.